Hello everybody and welcome to the Alien vs Predator Galaxy podcast. This is episode 77 and I'm your usual co-host Aaron Percival aka Corporal Hicks and joining me is my usual partner in crime Ridge Top aka Adam. Hey everyone. And we've got a special guest on this um, this episode. If you're you know, particularly familiar with the, um, the background, the behind the scenes of the uh, Alien and the Predator films it's a name that might be a little familiar to you. You might have heard it once or twice. Um, they had something to do with putting the monsters on, on the screen. I'm not quite sure. We're going to find out today. But we are, of course, talking to Alec Gillis of ADI. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks for having me. I always like to gab about aliens and predators. Funny, we do too, actually. <laughs> a whole, you know, several hundred hours so far probably just just a little hobby you've probably talked more about them than i've uh, spent time making them so you know <laughs> you know i'd actually be interested in those um, in those numbers but you know that might not might not be of interest to the uh, the listeners but i will hand it over to ridgetop to uh, kick us off and uh, you can listen to the you know the the, the person you probably listen to this podcast for a uh, chat so first off, we just would like to thank you for taking the time to sit and talk with us today. It's very much appreciated. Before we get into it, we'd also like to congratulate you on the opening of your exhibit in the Hollywood Museum. For our listeners in the States, be sure to check it out if you get the chance. We also have a tradition of asking our guests about the first time they experienced the franchises we're going to be discussing. So Alec, do you remember the first time you saw Alien? I assume it was prior to working on Aliens. And do you also remember the first time you came across Predator? I believe you were working with Stan Winston at that point, but you didn't work on the original film. Uh, well, let's uh, let's take it in sequence, in chronological order. Um, Alien, uh, I remember I saw, it must have been in like, what, 78? I saw, uh, I was at a convention, a Starlog convention, and I saw a slideshow. I can't remember who was who the guests were, but it was a slideshow of the sets and uh, there were no creature pictures, but the sets and some of the costumes, like the space suit, you know, the samurai-style space suit, and I was just, I was blown away. And I remember there was a guy sitting behind me who somehow, I was very jealous of them. This was pre-internet, so this, you know, I think I was about 19 or so, uh, then 18 maybe, and there was this kid behind me about my age, and he had a face hugger that he had made out of cotton and latex, and he was carrying it around. He had it perched on his shoulder, and I'm like, you know, I'd never seen anything like it. Like, what, what is that thing? You know, it's, this is a creature from the movie. And I'm like, how the hell does a guy my age, you know, with no connections get, how, how did he find this out? So it was very, because I was into creature effects at the time I was making things. Uh, so I was very upset that someone uh, had that scoop on me, but very, looking very much forward to the, to seeing the movie. When I did see the movie, I went with a friend and we went, we were out in Brea, California, which is not far from where I grew up in Santa Ana. And we saw the movie and sat there with our, you know, jaws on the floor, amazed and impressed. And that guy was James Cameron that I saw the movie with. And just quickly, I know a lot of people, a lot of people on Instagram give me a hard time. He said like, will you please stop talking about Cameron? But, um, it was a pivotal, you know, thing in my life to meet Jim before he got into the industry and and then work with him. But I had I had met him through a, an art teacher that taught at my high school, and her husband taught oceanography at Cal State Fullerton, where 
Jim was a student. And she said, hey, you like making monsters special effects? This guy's doing that stuff too. And Cameron's about six years older than me, but I called him up and went out and saw his film Xenogenesis, you know, that he shot on 35 millimeter and it was like he was like heads and shoulders above me in my in talent and ability so it was great it was like having a a big brother that was like you know already you know a starter on the football team teaching you things so anyway that really that was a kick because he and i saw alien at the mall you know when it first came out and then five years later he's directing aliens uh so that's how mercurial his rise was (laughs) that's awesome i don't think i've heard that story before and then and then in terms of predator uh i did work on the original predator for stan i wasn't one of the uh i wouldn't call myself one of the key artists on that because we were doing uh what were we doing maybe pumpkin head at the same time or maybe months i can't remember there was a couple projects going on so I would jump in like, you know, I helped with the uh, body cast of Kevin Peter Hall, you know, which everybody did because he was so massive that it took all of us to, to mold him. And then I, I sculpted on the uh, bodysuit uh, as well. But, you know, Steve Wang and Matt Rose were the lead artists on that. So I was kind of, you know, just support a support player. And I did not go to set with it either. In fact, when they packed off to go to set, Tom Woodruff and I stayed behind. Ooh, there's a phone ringing. Tom Woodruff and I stayed behind and made a little short film in the in the stand studio while everybody was in Mexico shooting Predator. So anyway, and then of course, oh, a little bit more background on the Predator. When they came to stand with it, it was when the film had kind of like you know they pulled the plug and uh, you know they were talking about being dissatisfied with the creature, the previous draft of the creature. And Stan was very much a, a guy who loved challenges and he loved to rise to the occasion. He liked to be the superhero and save the day and all that. And Joel Silver was uh, a big producer who was saying, you know, you got to help me, Stan. And we only had, I think, six weeks, six or eight weeks to build that creature, the Predator. And we had just come off of Aliens and, you know, we had done some pretty cool stuff, uh, Terminator Aliens, you, you know, I guess maybe. I don't know if, I don't think Leviathan, but, you know, Monster Squad, things like that. And the the studio was really on the map at that point. And we begged Stan not to take this movie because we just didn't think there was enough time to do anything great. I remember quoting, you know, saying, look, Stan, Rick Baker is doing Harry and the Hendersons. He, he has a year to do a single character. You want us to do something in six weeks? And Stan was like adamant. He said, guys, I'm sorry, but you don't get to decide what jobs I take. Basically, I'm doing this, whether you're helping or not. Uh, and But Stan was also a great cheerleader, so he kind of pumped us up and convinced us it was possible. And he was right. He was absolutely right. He threw himself into it, into the design. He was just constantly drawing. And, and he was also excellent at choosing uh, the right people for the right tasks. And to pick uh, Steve Wang and Matt Rose, who were really young, but super talented guys with tons of energy, to put them in in, as the key artists was a great move because Steve had the color scheme in his brain. You know, he had all the amphibious stuff and he was a whiz with an airbrush and doing something really fresh there. And uh, Matt Rose was just an awesome sculptor sculpting the head. And uh, 
You know, he, uh, Stan proved us all wrong, and I'm glad he did. <laughs> An ongoing but friendly argument that we tend to have on the um, on the AVP Galaxy boards is about the skull in H.R. Giga's original alien suit. You know, where do you like it, do you not like it kind of thing. As a creature designer, I'd be really curious to hear your opinion on, on that human skull. Are you pro or anti-skull in the alien? Well, I think that it, it is a genius like so much of Giger's work, it is a genius touch that I'm happy that I didn't really realize it was there in the first viewings of the film. Uh, it wasn't until the behind the scenes that I really, that it, that it registered in my brain, oh my God, there's a human skull in there. You know, that just is, it's almost like an Easter egg for me. It's, or it's so subtly presented in the film that I think it works beautifully. If I was to say from the, the get-go, you know, what, what's the, to me, it's an eyeless creature. And that transparent dome is the thing for me that is really the, the hook. So I don't have to, I don't, you know, I probably am a little more on the less thrilled about the skull eyes sockets inside, you know, meter. If you were to, if you were to look at it as a little kind of a meter with a needle. Um, however, it matters so little to me because it isn't in my face. In fact, if not that anyone can see the, Red Alien in uh, AVPR, <laughs> but we really, we prominently displayed the mm-hmm. eye sockets in that. So there must be something about it I like. So I don't know. I don't know. There you go. I I, I love the creature. I think Giger's original Alien is, is, is pretty much a perfect design. So the amount that I was aware of that, those eyes, which was next to nothing, is perfect for me. Yeah, I think you're right, though. I think it works best as like a very kind of subtle effect. I, I am losing this argument so badly. You love, <laughs> you love the eye sockets? I, I really, look, I, I get the appeal of the, you know, the eyeless sort of feature, but I also find the idea of this empty skull terrifying mm-hmm. as well. I mean, it's what is probably the main thing I love about, um, about Jet, his design. I really dig that, um, you know, that skull. But fair enough, I I will continue losing with grace and continue asking questions. I I will say that what's brilliant brilliant about it is that the 79 alien is birthed, you know, the host is a human being. So it, in my book, it has always taken on characteristics of its host. And that's a characteristic of the host. And maybe it's a useless, just a, you know, a, a vestige of mimicry or human DNA or whatever that is in the in the alien that doesn't really it's you know it never evolved the eyes to me it's very interesting my big concern about it would be if you created an alien with eye sockets like that that uh that it would look corny oh wait a minute i just criticized the newborn didn't i (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you do see that in um, one of the video games as well. In Aliens Colonial Marines, they have a, a Giger-style alien, but without the dome that's just the exposed skull. And yeah, it, it does look a little silly. Well, it, it's it's interesting. The uh, you know Tom Wood sculpted the, the head in Aliens, and Cameron had us remove the dome, which I was very much uh, against. But his, his logic was, look, this is a stunt movie. We're going to be doing things with this alien that they never did in, in the 79 alien. And that, that dome's going to be cracking constantly. To which, you know, my response was, well, then we'll just have more. We'll just make a bunch of domes. And we'll just, and we've done that subsequently without any problem. I think he, I, I don't think Jim was as familiar with some of the durable plastics 
he just thought it was going to be shattering like glass every time a guy took a fall, and that's not the case. But having said that, in Aliens, Tom sculpted the head that did not have a dome. The front of it has no eyes. So I think you know Cameron wanted to maintain the eyeless look without a dome. Did you guys never get as far as having any any dome on the aliens aliens at all because you know it, it is a story that cameron you know said what he said you know that they did break but my memory of it was that they were breaking which was why it got it was gotten rid of not it it would break no we we never made them okay fair enough we never made um domes it was it was you know his certainty from the get-go and eh. anyway uh, you know and the movie's great so you have uh people who embrace that because they love the movie. If the movie had not been great, people would say, and not only did the movie suck, but they screwed up the alien, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You've always had kind of a fan preference argument between the domed heads and the ridged heads. And I was honestly happy to see it come back for EVPR, but it didn't mess with a couple of fan theories, how they were like, well, that it's a result of the aliens aging, which is why they, they're ridged headed and aliens, but I've always just took it as a design difference yeah there's no uh, it's very quaint and naive a lot of times when i read fan theories because you're like no that's just the directors the strauss brothers for instance like aliens more than they like alien and they don't like the dome so out the out went the dome and nobody's plotting these things or structure or you know lovingly taking into account any kind of mythos they're just doing what they think looks cool So now that The Predator has just wrapped up its theatrical run with its Chinese release, we were hoping that this time around you could chat to us uh, in a little more detail about the film. Have you had the chance to, I assume you have, seen the finished film and what did you think of it? I enjoyed it. I, you know, I'm a huge Shane Black fan. I love, he's a great guy. He's very calm and even keeled. He listens. He's collaborative. And and what I love most about his writing is that I think he has a great handle on uh, what makes 80s films so great because he, you know, was one of the guys that created that, which is ensemble, which is repartee, you know, buddy films. And, and I like it. I know that the film, I've read, you know, people online and reviews and things. Some people say, oh, it's hilarious. Uh, you know, the, the jokes are great and the characters are fun. And other people hate it for exactly the same reasons. I fell on the uh, side saying I love this because the original Predator to me, and you got to remember, I was a working professional when I saw the original Predator. I thought that it was a, um, gosh, I don't want to say it's a comedy, but it is tonally, it, there's a lot of comedy in the original Predator. And, and Shane Black is the wisecracking guy, and he writes those types of characters, you know. So I thought that this film had more tonally in common with Predator than perhaps some of the AVP movies. Uh, and, and, you know, this is the first solely Predator movie I've worked on since the original Predator. But I thought it tonally had, had more in common with the original Predator than some of the more recent efforts. So I did enjoy it. From when Adam came to visit you guys last year, you mentioned that ADI's involvement with the film had a lot to do with um, your existing relationships with John Davis and um, and Fred Decker. I was wondering what those first meetings, um, you know, with with the with the head honchos were like when when you first met Shane to talk about, you know, what he wanted you to do with this film. And 
Uh, yeah, well, you know, you mentioned Fred Decker. He is a huge supporter of practical effects as well as us. So he was, uh, and he's another guy, you know, him and Shane, are, I just, they're just great guys. They both, Fred in particular, was very interested in promoting a heavy practical effects build list. And Shane was as well. But sometimes, you know, particularly with studios, when all the other players get involved and you start breaking down the list of what's a VFX shot and what's a pick shot, things don't necessarily evolve the way that we want it to or that, that Fred wants it to. And sometimes even the way that it's to, because there are realities of the machinery that uh, kind of force the hand and 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 send it in a certain direction. Like for instance, the um, the big upgrade predator. We were actively designing that character, and our hope was, you know, if you make him about nine or ten feet tall, we could potentially do something practical that might need some compositing. You know, it might need some. You could have something on set, uh, but you'd have to shoot it cleverly, and et cetera, et cetera. And when you start getting into more in-depth meetings, you realize, oh, okay, the style of the movie or the flexibility that's desired really demands that this thing be CGI. The way they are conceiving of the action sequences and the way the camera's moving. And, you know, like, like we could say, yeah, let's, let's do a, a guy in a suit and comp him in. And if everyone was super thrilled with that idea and said, yes, we like the tactile presence of a, of a man in a suit and it's always been that way with the predator so let's keep it that way then you would go through whatever steps need would be needed to support that that technique but it, it, it when you have a more about the style of the film and the style of the action and how that's going to be shot then the technique becomes subservient to that you know the 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 effect of the character becomes mm -hmm. certain. like for for instance if you want to have the the camera racing across the ground up to the the uh you know from a distance up to the upgrade and then swirl around him in a michael bay style while guys open fire on it that's a little tough for a composited thing because tracking of objects and planting that 3d cgi object into a plate is a lot easier to do with CGI than it is to plot a, uh, you know, do all the math and plot that move where you first you shoot your plate and then months later on a green screen stage, you match and scale adjust and use motion control, you know, to, to uh, lock your, your composited character in. That's a, that's a different uh, animal altogether. And I think studios get a little worried about that. And at some point, an executive says, wait, why? So we can have a man in a suit? Oh, that's dumb. Let's just do this thing digitally. And then he can leap 30 feet, you know, that kind of thing. Mm. So uh, anyway, that's a long-winded answer to say that, that I think that Shane, Fred, Tom, and I were very excited about the practical possibilities for the film. And not surprisingly, that practical uh, approach uh, became uh, limited down to three characters two of which were cut from the film ultimately and then so it's ultimately okay. one character so the idea of you know a practical uh, realization of the upgrade was dropped really early on then yes and in fact here's another thing the way things go in movies is that when that was dropped then the thought was well now it's a digital creation so the design of it should go to the digital department so we did not our design work was was stopped 
and it was taken over by the digital department. What about the practical half-side standing that they used on set? Was Did you guys not make that either? That was Todd Masters, I believe. It was half of the Predator, but it was full-size. Right, and that was just for lighting reference, I assume. Yeah. Yeah. So they would, you know, eye lines and lighting references. This is a big heavy thing. It was a big, like a silicone, nice silicone prop. But it was kind of like, as I recall, it was maybe down to the waist or yeah, belly button yeah. or something. From, yeah. from what we've seen. Yes. But you guys, did you still did the conceptual artwork for the design of the upgrade. No, I would say that is not our design. Okay. We did other designs, which we'll be releasing on our YouTube channel, Studio ADI's YouTube channel. Subscribe now. <laughs> Links in the post. <clears throat> yeah, that's right. Yeah, so we'll we'll show you at least how far we got on the design. The dog was more more of our intact design, although they did change it. You know, when you're des- designing things for strictly for digital use, <clears throat> it's a little bit different. You don't you don't build it, so you don't like you finish the design, you turn over the ZBrush files. And you're not sure how it's going to be used or or whether or not it's going to get changed. And they did, in fact, change the design of the dog. But there's a but there, you know, I can look at that and go, oh, yeah, I see. There's our, you know, 70 percent of that is ours. And since ADI last worked on a Predator film, Greg Nicotero's KNBFX worked on the most recent film before that, Predators. Mm-hmm. Uh, did anything they did in terms of suit construction on Predators influence your approach with the Predator? Not really, because um, uh, Shane wanted the Fugitive Predator. It's funny because the Fugitive pre- that name, the Fugitive Predator, came about after the film was done. It's a good name, but it, we were just calling it the original Predator or Pred 1. So anyway, Fugitive Predator, Shane wanted to make sure that it harkened back to the uh, original Predator, Stan's Predator. So we changed facial features a bit and, you know, maybe made him, uh, you know, just did what we thought would look cool. But his color scheme is very much the original. We darkened him down a little bit more than the original. But there are differences. But he's definitely supposed to look like, if, if you think of three, uh, that we built three characters, one fugitive Pred, and two emissary predators. Those two emissary predators were more far afi- farther afield from the original design. Uh-huh. The fugitive predator was meant to be the thing that kind of anchors you and makes you feel like, hey, I'm looking at uh, a direct descendant of the uh, of the Stan Winston predator. Uh, and then the other two guys were the variants. Then when those two guys left, then you were left with something that you know looks like the original predator and whether that you think that's a good thing or a bad thing that's that's how it uh, shook down yeah it was kind of an interesting juxtaposition because the predator did as far as the body goes did look like a very classic style predator but the armor was a lot more modern a lot sleeker than we're used to seeing on predators yes you're right and i will say that this was another unusual uh situation on the previous avp films and on every predator movie you know at b we did the same but we would design and create the Predators as well as their armor and their weapons. And in this case, all we did was create three naked Predators, and uh, the production designer and his team designed the mask and the armor. Weapons were created by the props department. Uh, Anything that had to do with cloth in the uh, costume was done by the costume department. So it was very much a fragmented and spread around 
So what was the reasoning behind that split in responsibilities? Was it just division of labor? It was a division of labor, but I'm not sure what the reason was. I think initially I thought, oh, okay. There's all you have to understand um, the economics of this. When you shoot in a, we shot in Vancouver. When you shoot in Canada, there's tax incentives. So they get something like 27% or 30% or 33% back for every dollar they spend in Canada. So every dollar they spend in Los Angeles is undesirable. Right. They're stuck because because they there isn't really exactly the talent pool in Canada to do exactly what we do. But they can get armor makers, they can get props makers, they can get costumers. So they take that off our plate and send it up that way. This commonly happens even on the big shows like like ABPR, for instance. They did not think it was a good idea to, uh, you know, they never broached on ABPR taking armor and weapons away from us. But they did say things like, well, look, gore. How about gore? Can somebody up here do the gore? What about like finishing pieces? So we will habitually, what happens is we will make a certain amount. If, if we're, we'll either say, yeah, okay, have a local makeup person do all the gore, take that off our plate, and then you guys have, you know, some number of dollars that you're that you're getting your tax incentive for in in the case of avpr we did leave some of our work unfinished and we set up a shop up there where we brought in talent and we uh, supervised the finishing using canadian artists so what we do is we reduce our build budget in los angeles and move that money and the projects up to canada uh, and do that. So uh, that's the kind of thing that we are always prepared for. But this one uh, went even further than that, which was to really just split the character up into multiple groups. And I'm not, I don't love that idea because I think that you end up with a lot of redundancies. Like, for instance, to dress Brian Prince, I think we had five departments standing around him. So you, you had this gaggle of people. Like, whereas you can go online on our YouTube channel, Studio ADI's channel, subscribe now. And you can watch a video called Dress a Predator. It is, uh, I think that's what it's called. And it's um, two guys in a truck. And, it, you know, it takes two people to dress a predator. But in this case, with this division of labor, when you have props, people standing back waiting with a shoulder cannon and somebody else waiting with a mask and someone else with a, you know, you end up with about eight people standing around dressing a predator. So I don't know how that, you know, that's not efficient. But perhaps the tax incentive dollars that they got back in the overall scheme of things, perhaps that was a money saver for them. Fair enough. I, I can completely believe that. And I'm not, by the way, just to clarify, I'm not necessarily complaining about that. I would rather do the everything on the character and have complete control over it and design, give the director design options that maybe other people would not give him. However, I can completely understand since this is a business I can completely understand why a producer would say, let's split it up and, um, you know, mm-hmm. and, and have AI doing the bare minimum work, you know. As far as the, the concept art goes, are you sometimes getting concept art from outside sources that you kind of have to build your designs based upon? Uh, sometimes it didn't happen in this case because they just totally took the work, right? Like, so we didn't, we didn't have to make a mask, uh, an armor mask that someone else designed because they hired someone else to, to build it. You know, all that talk about tax incentive, by the way, is is only a partial explanation because ultimately they went with quantum effects, which is based here in Los Angeles to build the armor parts. So I'm not exactly sure like 
you know, like, well, I could get, if I wasn't a battle hardened, scarred veteran, like the wolf predator, I would be like, well, how come you didn't come back to us with the mask, et cetera, et cetera. We didn't have a chance to bid on that. So I don't know, but it's all economics. That That's what it is. And what, what you realize after being in the business for a while is not to get offended or upset about the way the economics shake down. Now, sometimes you can you can have issues with whether or not the economics actually do work the way a producer thinks they do, or uh, sometimes there are things behind the scenes I'm not privy to that um, have to do with convenience and other deals and things like that. So this is not a, a complaint or, or a bitch session about it. It's just meant to explain to your dear listener, dear reader and listener slash listener, but if you want to know more about how, why things go digital and why things stay practical, we do have a fantastic video called CG or not CG. Did I mention the YouTube channel, Studio ADI's channel on oh, YouTube? Oh, no, no. T- tell us about it. Uh, <laughs> we have over 140 million views and 250,000 subscribers. New content going up whenever we get around to it. <laughs> And yeah, I've watched that video and it's a really interesting kind of delve into just the politics behind the studio system. And sometimes it can be frustrating, you know, most notably, I'll always bring up the thing prequel, how frustrating that is for me, but studio is going to do what they're going to do sometimes. Yeah. And, uh, and if it works, uh, you know, it doesn't bother anybody. Nobody notices, nobody talks about it. It's just when it doesn't work that, um, uh-huh. that we get, uh, we get our knickers in a twist. With the Predator, um, Shane Black wanted to make the Predators more agile than the previous incarnations and you know, went as far as to hire dancers and parkour performers with um, Brian Prince and Kyle Strauss, who are amazing guys, by the way. If you're listening to this podcast and you haven't um, already, we did have an interview with them a couple of weeks. I get the plugs in too. I like, I'm allowed them as well. Oh, you should. <laughs> Head back to uh, avpgalaxy.net forward slash podcast and check out their episode. To bring that sort of agility to life, you know, those guys were who Shane went to. Um, In terms of creating the actual suits, did this focus on mobility? Did it make your construction differ from the approach that was um, taken in the AVP films? It really did not. I mean, you know, everything that we do, our, our techniques are all designed to maximize mobility anyway. I think that uh, a lot of that is a performance issue. Although I will say that on AVP, Paul Anderson, <clears throat> AVP1, Paul Anderson really wanted these guys to look heavily armored. Mm-hmm. And uh, he he said that uh, he wanted them to look like American football players, you know, like that kind of, those kind of proportions. Uh, he said, you know, that if you were fighting uh, human beings, you know, uh, unarmored human beings, you wouldn't be, you wouldn't need to be in this kind of armor, but you're fighting steel-skinned, biomechanical, acid-blooded aliens, so you better show up with battle gear. That was the concept for that, but by the time ABPR rolled around and we were back in the realm of kind of a specialized kind of ninja guy like the wolf, we were able to get back to a little bit more of the original intent uh, of the McTiernan film, and we were able to slenderize them and layer them less with bulky armor and all that kind of stuff. So that was our MO on this film was to create nice, slender, flexible foam tech suits that, that fit the performers snugly and inhibited them their movement as minimally as, as possible. 
And that kind of segues into our next question. Studio ADI has worked on three different Predator films now. And and like you were saying, they've, they've had different visions from the directors. Like Anderson wanted something more imposing and heavily armored. The Strauss brothers wanted something more akin to the originals. And Shane Black, it seemed, wanted something more focused on movement. So which of your different takes on the creature has been the most interesting to work on and, and realize, would you say? Well, I think that the wolf predator afforded us a little bit more of our own design freedom than the other two did, meaning that the directors were like, you know, make them cool, make them cool. We love the original, you know, so so we were able to kind of like kick around ideas and come up with this idea that he is a a veteran that he's like the equivalent of like a 45 year old guy. He's like Tom Berenger in, um, in uh, platoon. He's scarred up. He's got a bunch of gadgets and, 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 you know, the whip for instance was our idea that, uh, you know, it's a very, it's a very tactile kind of like badass weapon that imagine if it was so serrated, you could like cut an alien in half. And so there was a lot more, fun to be had uh, on that one and then also we were the wolf predator was unmasked so briefly that um, we were emboldened enough to to not feel like we had to use the performer's eyes so we gave him mechanical eyes which allowed us to change his facial proportions specifically his forehead is more sloped back we wanted him to look a little bit more like a predatory cat when you use the performer's eyes, you always have the forehead right up above it and out in front of the eyes, right? So you can't really create that backswept look as of a predatory cat quite as well. But the upside of using the performer's eyes is they have good vision. And when there's a lot of stunts, you know, you need good vision. So we were able to play a little bit more with the facial proportions on the wolf. So Scar and Fugitive were contact lenses and wolf had mechanicalized yes okay yeah i i always liked how you got to see a little more of wolf's face in the unrated cut of avpr when he kind of swaps his mask with the other predator and watches the playback it was it was just good to see more of those effects in there yeah yeah well he's a uh i i do like his uh i do like his look there's another interesting design thing you know that like people do design very cool predators like there's lots of artwork out you know uh, on the, on social media and some really great fun paintings and illustrations of predators but i don't believe any of them are actually trying to make it work over the eye spacing and eye size of a human being and that is makes a world of difference when you're designing a predator like the two emissaries one of the emissaries was played by Kyle Strauss and Kyle has a smaller head than Brian and Kyle's eyes are closer together than Brian's. So as a result, you can't just put a, you know, conveniently put a Brian Prince head on Kyle Strauss. It doesn't, doesn't quite work. So you have to design everything around it. So the predator head that was designed specifically for Kyle to wear was a smaller head than Brian Prince's head. And so that, but, but that's okay because that that's just the variations among human beings, I assume are similar to the variations among predators. Yeah. Why wouldn't they be? Is, yeah. is that a, is that an issue you've run into then with them, um, you know, like various stunt performers or whatever? And I mean, I know like Ian Foyer came and did um, standing bits for, for Requiem when Ian White couldn't, you know, and I think you reused the Ian, uh, Ian White suit for him. So, you know, is that an issue that you run into? 
In that case, not so much because, uh, once again, the wolf predator uh, had mechanical eyes, so the stunt head had its own eyes attached, and you would look through drilled-out pupils, right? Still not the greatest of vision, but the eye issue, eye spacing was not an issue on that. But body body suit is definitely affected. Ian Foyer is about 6'7". Ian uh, White is 7 foot one or two so there is a difference in the way a bodysuit fits you know a six inch difference uh the way that fits but if a guy is lean it works better than if he was like shorter and stockier and that was the issue we had on avp one you know we had bulky predators their armor was bulky to, to begin with and they were built around ian white and we did not have the budget to create costumes for each and every stunt character who played a who played a predator. But the we were assured by production that they would find us seven footers in Prague, but uh, they really couldn't. So we were putting those same costumes on six foot five guys, six foot four guys, six foot three guys, and at that point they looked like little butterball turkeys because. You know, like a forearm gauntlet and a piece of bicep armor all of a sudden are colliding because there's no arm length in there, you know. In an ideal world, you would have all seven-foot guys. In Los Angeles, you go to community colleges and there's basketball players that range from 6'8 to, you know, 6'11. Then then that's you're in a pretty good place. But me, myself, personally, I've always, I've always felt that you know, you start hitting, you know, someone who's 6'5 in a predator suit. It's just not that impressive. Uh, you really need a six foot nine to seven foot two person uh, in there. So, and uh, Brian are both in the six nine and a half or so range, 6'10. So that's a good, those are good heights. And, and they're both slim guys. And that's another important thing. You got to have a slender person to work. I mean, they're athletic, of course. But they're not boxy bodybuilder types, you know, where, mm-hmm. where you're just adding rubber on top of somebody who's already shaped like an upright Volkswagen. You know, you, you, there's nothing much you can do there. That's fair enough. The Predator featured some connections to the AVP films in the way of the Shurikens, uh, Lex's spear. And what looked kind of like scars, a scar style mask. This caused some discussion as to if they were deliberate references to, you know, to the AVP films. I understand that you you guys didn't you didn't handle the weapon design, but I kind of just always suspected that they were just props that ADI, you know, had easy access to because you 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 made those, and they were included because of that availability. I was wondering if you knew anything about the story behind those. Well, they, I, I don't know other than that we were contacted by the props department to get some of that stuff because they, Shane specifically wanted those items in the film. I assume if you, if you wanted to ignore that they existed for, you know, from, and not make a connection to the previous film, then and he would have redesigned it and created something unique. But I, I believe that uh, you know one of the interests of this film is to start up bringing the lore together. As, as I mentioned, the Alien, well, sorry, the the Predator franchise hasn't necessarily been like like in the Marvel universe. We've 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 all become used to like interconnected characters and events and all that because they were all plotted out in the you know 60s 70s 80s what have you in volume after volume of comic books so there is a there is actual precedence and you can actually chart these things in a more kind of um, cohesive way 
the predator stuff is being is is evolving as each film is made and it's like i think you know cameron did a great job as a hired gun director to come in and say i can expand on this basic idea and and you know the universe has started to be created and then of course when it went back to ridley he had his own ideas of of how these things should be explained and what that universe is so in the in the case of the alien movies i kind of feel like we've got like competing views of what the franchise is or what the backstories are or what the I'm just saying that they, things are evolving. Like, you know, they, they, they are not plotted in the way that, that the Marvel Universe is. So I think fans tend to bring, attempt to bring more order and logic to the alien and predator uh, worlds than it actually does exist. And it doesn't mean that the, that the fans shouldn't do that. That's not a judgment. I'm just saying that a lot of that kind of speculation is <laughs> the fans are maybe in a way ahead of the studios. Yeah, it's an interesting time for the franchises, with especially with the looming Disney acquisition of Fox. Uh, a lot of people are, are wondering what that's going to mean for the different franchises. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope that um, the Disney presence allows them to open up the universes of these films a little bit like i could easily like i mean blomkamp's alien five right i i don't have any insider information on that but you know i love in the old comic books the what if uh you know what, 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 those were superhero right like superman what if stories yeah like that. yeah i'm marvel as well I think. yeah why not Let, or, or a graphic a graphic novel comes out and it's just an offshoot right doesn't mean that like all this obsession with canon and all that, it, it, I think starts tripping people up if we would relax a little bit and say, what's a cool alien universe story? Okay, out on a podunk planet, something happens, you know, or or is this part of the main story or, you know, same with the Predator stories. I, I, I would love to see, I'd love to see a Predator movie that has no humans or very few humans. In it. And you're not alone in that at all. Yeah. That, and I don't even need to see their home world. I'm, I, I'm kind of lean towards not seeing the Predator's home world. Yeah. As far as canon goes, I, I couldn't agree with you more, Alec. I think it's it's good to respect it, but you don't have to be constrained by it. I mean, it, it depends on the franchise. Some some franchises rely on it more heavily than than others. But in terms of Alien and Predator, you just see so much variation like there's there's a comic coming out that is a what if story, which is William Gibson's uh, yeah. unused Alien Three screenplay, yeah. and we're That's really true. excited for that one. So yeah, personally, I and I've been saying this for a while. Like I would like to see the movies take on more of an approach where you have different arcs and different alternate continuities. Like a lot of fans were miffed about what was going to happen with uh, is Neil Blomkamp's film going to replace Alien Three? But I was always like, no, you know, I love Alien Three. But I would like to see an alternate take to that. I mean, that's yeah. not that's not a mark against Alien Three, you know. Yeah, yeah, and I, I and I I think it's a kind of a um, it's a little bit of a concrete and pedestrian way to look at things. That if if anything changes too much, someone has raped my childhood. <laughs> I, I hate that saying. You know, you know what Stephen King said it the best. When he was sitting, he was being interviewed. I saw this interview years ago, and he was sitting at his desk in front of a shelf of books. And someone said, how do you feel that ho- about Hollywood ruining so many of your, your stories? And he said, they didn't ruin them. And he gestured behind them. There they all are, right? They're uh-huh. still there. Alien 3 will still be there if you prefer it over Blomkamp's Alien 5. You know, I don't know. It's kind of like colorizing movies too. Like who gives a shit? So you colorize a movie, big deal. There's still a black and white version. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I want to go back though to 1940s movies and put in 
tons of swear words just <laughs> because that's a form of color, isn't it? Mm, true. It's entirely true. Language. Redub some classic movies. Yeah. Frankly, Scarlet, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> I, I watched a um, a thing on YouTube earlier where it was R2-D2 dubbed with like some old sort of style gangster sounding fella from like the 40s yeah. and it was hilarious. That's funny. Yeah. Did you mention YouTube? Because I have a channel. <laughs> oh, well, tell, tell us. Tell us, Alec. I oh, think, it's the ABI's channel. Uh, we have uh, almost 300 videos of uh, behind the scenes, fascinating archival footage and some new footage too. By the way, have you gentlemen seen my installments of my little short film playtime. Uh, I've, I've seen the trailer for it. There was you a little teaser on Facebook right now, sir. Those are excuses. <laughs> I will watch it soon. Yeah, I promise. It because it's a, you'll like it. If you're a fan of practical effects, you'll like it. It's a story of a little animatronic puppet from the eighties trying to navigate in a digital Hollywood today. So is it inspired by Chucky at all? Like, yeah, it kind of gave me that vibe. He's yes. Well, yes, it should give you the vibe because he is a, uh, he is a Chucky type. I just didn't want to get sued. So he's a, um, if you imagine like a low budget uh, version of Chucky, maybe like something like at the Charles Band version of Chucky. And they're, they, he gets wind that they're rebooting his franchise. So he gets very excited and he, he goes to the guy who made him back in the 80s to get a, a makeover. And I got Kevin Yeager to play the guy who created him. So it's fun. I think you'll enjoy it. It's autobiographical, by the way. <laughs> I play I play the part of a of a movie producer and I there's actual they're paraphrased slightly but quotes that I've heard from movie producers oh, man. in the scene so it is as inside baseball as you can possibly want and we'll be sure to include the links to uh, those videos in the news post oh, for this I podcast so it's the only reason I'm doing this podcast you know it's funny we hear that kind of thing all the time. I'm kidding. I'm joking. I told you I like talking about Angry Brother. I, I will regret not seeing you play the president, though, since uh, that oh, Blomkamp. Yeah. Uh, was that fully filmed or was that just planned as a trailer? No, we did, I think, uh, four episodes. Oh, man. Um, I would love to see that someday. <laughs> yeah. And it was that looked so good. It was before Trump was even running. So this is, again, this is why it was one of the things I continually impressed with Neil is that even in that, he does a silly comedy about, like, what if a U.S. president squandered public resources and acted like a douchebag frat boy? And this is, it's prescient, right? Anyway, not to get too political, because you could easily say that that, that it's based on George Bush and Bill Clinton as well, right? It's just taken to an extreme. But he decided not to release it because he he felt like it was too... uh, it was actually, it's actually more um, restrained than a lot of stuff that's going on. I mean, you, you don't want to be labeled fake news either, do you? <laughs> yeah, I could. You know what I was hoping was he'd re- he'd release it and then I could jumpstart my actual presidential campaign. <laughs> <laughs> Why the hell not? It yeah. looked so funny. The trailer just had me in stitches. So yeah, it was. Hopefully pretty, someday. It was pretty funny. It looked like you guys had some genuine fun on that like you did the um you did the commercial ones as well didn't you yes yeah those were fun so you know i, I come from the roger corman's that's where i started so um that's where you met jim isn't it oh, no not not met jim you worked with jim on them right yeah yeah no i took i took jim in i got the interview at corman's and i was paranoid about my crappy portfolio so i i brought him along and, and he had a great portfolio so uh, and then what i didn't realize was that it took them six months to hire us because they kept going back and forth because Jim was so obnoxious, they didn't want to hire us. 
Isn't that funny? <laughs> Isn't that ironic? I brought him in to, to ensure getting hired, and they were actually Jim knows this, by the way. He's been told by the very because and and everybody in, ends up. Cameron's very loyal. He, he all the people who uh, that worked together at Corman's, the Skotak brothers, Galen Hurd, a bunch of other people. He has used them on on various projects, and so they everybody has a great relationship from the old days. And he knows that he was a you know twenty five year old unstoppable force who was sometimes like an obnoxious gifted child, you know, <laughs> anyway, but you were asking some, Oh, actually I come from the Roger Corman school of when people uh, utilize what resources they have and, and, and make a project out of it. So uh, Neil had a, a building that was Oates studios, you know, that was his place. And it was a, a furniture warehouse, like an appliance warehouse. And they had this kitchen, this big giant kitchen that they used to do like online cooking classes out of. So he just said, Hey, let's do a, let's do a cooking show. And uh, that's where we shot. And we built a bunch of those props, and crazy contraptions and stuff. And, and, and the way that evolved was the way I got the role was we built the Damasu 9,000 with all those chopping blades and it was built around a chainsaw. It was a big, it was a big deal. And it was kind of dangerous and hard to hold because it was very heavy. So I was demonstrating it in the videos and, and saying, Neil, I don't know who are you going to get to hold this thing? Cause you could really injure yourself. <laughs> and I said, Hey, you know what? I've got the eighties hair. you know, I, I can, I can do this. Like, I have, I'm a, a very artificial person. So he was like, Oh, okay. Well, well send me a, um, send me a, an audition tape. And I was like, Oh, well, if you're actually like, if you're actually casting, then go ahead and cast. And then he was like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. And so he gave me the role. And then when, when I was doing that, he wrote the bad president stuff for me and we went on and did that. So anyway, uh, for, for two seconds, I was the next Charlotte Copley. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, that's brilliant. <laughs> anyway, on to predator. Cause you know, we, we're, we're here to talk about, you know, predator as well as YouTube that's and true. stuff like that's, that. I keep derailing it back to my YouTube channel. I mean, you know what? I was going to, I was going to go there again, but I'm, ah, nah. <laughs> well, now that we've done it, just, <laughs> we have to make so many references that it gets funny again. Right now it's not so funny. Okay. Predator okay. questions. This is something that we tend to see crop up on the boards, um, on the forums a lot when, um, when we're talking about the later predator designs and it's, um, it's the resting position of the mandibles. Um, mm-hmm. in, in the first two films, they close in an almost X shape, but in the AVPs, they like a parallel kind of open, uh, look rather than closed. And we often see people wonder why, you know, in fact, one of our community members, the old one, not her age, this, this is her, literally a handle specifically wanted us to ask you in this podcast, you know, mm-hmm. was that a creative decision or was that a technical thing with the, um, with the animatronics? No, it's 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 always creative. I mean, I guess I would ask the question: Why do they have to close the way they did in the first two movies? In, any more than the um, alien needs a dome or doesn't need a dome. And if you think of it that way, then you know a director can say, "Oh, I think this guy's got different teeth." You know, Paul Anderson certainly did that with asking us to add teeth to the Predator in an attempt to make him more anthropomorphic and therefore more relatable to the Sanaa Lathan character. So those kind of conversations always happen. They always, you know, we, we take into account what the director's looking for. We also will be there as representatives of the fans, but you have to remember that's a very difficult job to do because the fans don't agree. Yes, we know that. 
Yeah, and uh, I mean, this is something that we've learned over the years that there are some people who don't, like I said, you know, they they don't want their childhoods messed with, and there are some people who accuse you. I saw that as a comment, like you know, with the fugitive predator. Somebody said, "Boring. Looks like the one from." The first film, come on, ADI, you're getting lazy. Well, all right. Or we diligently worked to create a, a resonance to that one, right? So I, I don't know what to tell fans who say, I like this, I didn't like that. Why was it this way? Why was it? There's tons of discussion that goes on in all these things. I don't know. That's probably a very unsatisfying answer. If, if it's the answer, it's the answer. Chance to do the uh, to to do another one. I will bring up that question when a director says, "Let's talk about the position of the mandibles." <laughs> there no discussion, sir. Take a look at this picture from nineteen and eighty five or six, whatever, no, eighty seven, and this picture from when was the other one come out? Ninety two. Yeah, early nineties. Those are your choices. That's <laughs> when we were going over the list. I actually miffed Darren because I thought that question was a little nitpicky. Just so you know. Well, I don't know. No, listen, man, the <laughs> devil is in the details. So uh, I'm glad that people are engaged. And, and I, I tease a little bit there because I have had, uh, you know, we all have, we all carry into the job or into the viewing or whatever the experience of it. We all carry our biases and our preferences. And there have been times that I have gotten a note from an executive to change a sculpture or something. And I just think, you have no idea what makes this cool and what, and at the end of the day, if I want 100% control over the character that I'm building, I need to build my own character, not be hired by someone to build a character for their franchise. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh-huh. So, that, uh, you know, I don't know how that explains anything other than to, to say that we're all passionate about something and expressing there's nothing wrong with expressing it i i I, sometimes i I find myself like in a position like where we'll we'll try to explain how our deadpool video for instance on our youtube channel people will say you guys don't have to defend anything you did a great job other people will say you know all the defending in the world doesn't make this good you guys fucked up right well neither of those are what i'm not trying to defend myself i'm trying to tell people how the how it works and, and how decisions are arrived at well, that's the interesting stuff, in my opinion, anyway, is the, is the roadmap, is the journey. I agree. You know, now that we have social media, and particularly I'm a fan of Instagram, I'm on Instagram, follow me, Alec underscore Gillis, look, a different, <laughs> different plug. But you can see such excellent artwork from all over the world. It's kind of like, a, I liken it to like watching like, you know, Ukraine's Got Talent or Bolivia Sure Can Sing or some show like that. It seems like everybody on planet Earth is phenomenally talented, singing, dancing, artwork, something, right? So at some point, the artwork itself, while it's interesting and visually cool, only is one part of the story. The other part of the story is how do you do that artwork in a professional or when you're under fire or when things aren't going right? What are those stories about? And that right now in my career, that is what interests me is like, how does anybody get really great work on screen considering everything that anybody's that we're all up against you know we have a lot of resources to do it but there's always some obstacle or barrier and i want to know how people overcame it so that i could have some inspiration to overcome my own barriers you know uh-huh. so of course we were going to ask about the emissary so it's it's really well known that 
ADI designed the two additional Predators that ended up being cut from the film. Uh, seeing some behind-the-scenes stills and the odd comment from you guys still managed to get into the making of books. We were hoping to ask you a little about those guys because it sounds like there was a great deal of exploration into what you were doing with the Emissary Predators. Tom mentioned something about giving them the Predator equivalent of a lab coat. I was wondering if you could elaborate on that at all. Yeah, so Shane's idea, initial idea for the emissaries were that, you know, he, as he said, rightly so, this is what I love about Shane. He said, like, you know, we see the movies and we see the warrior, the hunter, warrior, predators, but they arrive in these spaceships that don't necessarily seem like the kind of things that these guys themselves built. So his logic was there must be different classes of predators just like there are different classes of insects or human beings, you know. So maybe there is a science class of predators, a scientific class of the top minds that can actually design and build invisibility cloaking devices and interstellar spaceships and things like that. Who are those guys? Could we meet those guys? And and maybe those are the guys that if there is a civil war happening on the predator world maybe those guys have felt that they need to reach out to earth to kind of like prepare earth for an oncoming you know to become a battlefield or that things are going to go south soon so our marching orders were design me a couple of guys that look like they are predators but they are the intelligentsia and the technical guys so tom's Tom's comment about like, ha ha, a lab coat, pocket protectors, you know, like you, you go there, you, you think of those as the kind of like stereotypes and then you're like, okay, now, now we can free our minds of those stereotypes and start thinking about what, you know, what they might wear, how they might act, what they, you know, what they might look like. And, and the thing that excited me about the emissaries was that Shane said he wanted to make them two older people, older characters. So like if one was like 70 and the other was like 60. So these guys are aged and wise and smart. So how, what does that look like? So we started doing design and we were designing them as if they were naked, but we were also doing a bunch of potential costume work as well. They had a, a little bit like we were going with some looked very tribal, tribal elders. Others looked like there was a tribal look, but a combination of high-tech kind of plastic kind of fabrics and things like that that were pretty interesting that we will put up on our YouTube channel soon. And I think the notes that came back from the studio were, uh, these guys look old, right? Like, it's funny that, we, that you'll do that, right? The director will say, give me two old guys, and you, two old predators. You draw two old predators, and the studio's note is, they look old. <laughs> so Well, you did your job. Yeah, that's right. So the studio, this is typical of the way a studio works. And, and this is how Shane, why Shane is a success is that he masterfully can deal with the concerns of a studio because the studio execs are not necessarily deep into the fandom and the lore and the mythos of, of predators. Uh, they just go, uh-oh, you know, they're kind of a sort of a broad stroke reaction, right? And you kind of have to, yeah, well, you definitely have to pay attention to that because they're the ones funding the movie and you have a contract with them, et cetera, et cetera. But Shane's very diplomatic. So they had said, you know, their concern was these guys look frail. They look like they can't fight. They are not threatening. And that is the essence of what a predator is. So that's where we go, okay, now the job is to start layering in some threat and some physicality capableness or 
you know, lethalness or whatever, so that you feel like, even though, you know, they're scientists, they're badass scientists, right? And uh, so that's the challenge is, is to layer in those things. So what we came up with was, well, let's think of like, who's an old guy that you could imagine could still be intimidating, or if you saw him in a fight scene, you might fit. And we thought, well, what about Clint Eastwood? Or maybe Clint Eastwood from the era of Gran Torino, right? He looks kind of like a badass, right? It's his scowl. It's his attitude. He's tall. So maybe maybe we do that. So you give the guys a little more muscle mass. You, you take out the dowager's hump and the bad posture, and you make them a little bit more upright, and you make them a little bit more badass. And we settled on something with the studios. But to me, it was they, they still like the purity of what Shane was asking for was the most interesting jumping off point. And then it gets pulled back by the studio. And maybe that was a good thing. Maybe that was a, a, the fact that they didn't end up in the film is less about the characters or the success of that storyline, I think, and more about wanting to keep the momentum moving and not be distracted by these two other guys. I I don't want to say I, I agree with them being cut from the film, but I can see why they were cut from the film. Um, and some of the photos that we saw of them, they have like, um, it looks like a human designed military. Do you guys do those or was, was that also quantum? No, that we did not do those. And I don't believe it was quantum either. I think the, that was strictly a Canadian costume department effort. Kyle, when, when they performed as those predators, did you guys kind of have different ideas for their character or was that all Shane's direct uh, direction? It was more about the, it was, it was Shane's directing and it was more about like, we'll look at, um, at the way the two actors perform in the suit. And then we will kind of quietly between us start to look like Kyle, Kyle, uh, had a good moment with, I think it was maybe Olivia Munn. Uh, Kyle had a couple of good m- moments. Oh, I certainly one with Trevante Rhodes where, where he Trevante offers the predator a cigarette. And there were t- a couple of takes of it where the predator takes a drag off of it and <laughs> and then there was another one where the predator takes it and just throws it away in disgust. But, you know, Kyle had a nice kind of gesture cocked to his head so we can like play with the eyebrows and have him looking and, you know, g- give him some expression that way. But because these guys kind of turn more into warrior scientists rather than scientist warriors, you know what I mean? Then it was just more about what's the physicality that the actor is bringing through it rather than. Uh, and they're secondary characters rather than trying to create individual characters that uh, resonate with you in the brief time that they're unmasked on, on screen. I find it really interesting that the, the exploration of these guys went, went so, you know, went so far field because, you know, when, when, at least in terms of the fandom and I guess in some of the, the films themselves, but, you know, when, when the predators are aged up, they're, they're given, they're given more quills, their hairs, grayer, bluer. But with this one, they sound like some really interesting sort of, you know, explorations like the translucent dreads that somebody, uh, you or Tom mentioned that in one of the books. And then to settle on um, this kind of forehead protrusion as well on the on the finished designs from what we've seen anyway. So to, to branch out from, you know, the traditional sort of aged look, I think I think some of the exploration ideas that we've heard are really, really fascinating, really interesting. Yeah, and we would... You know, it's kind of this is the way it always is in in the franchises that we work on is that we try to push boundaries and try to present some things that are really unique and and that they may not be thinking of. And inevitably, the process is, uh, you know, it's always reined back in by the studio, mostly, you know, who's like, well, 
well, we don't really, you know, they, they're, they're always a little cautious. We may be a little more exuberant to uh, change things up and give some variations. Cause you know, I look at things like the K and B's berserker predator, that thing was bizarre. Right. And I think it's because in that case, Robert Rodriguez was given more authority to do what he wanted to do. I think he was bringing that movie in at a very reasonable price. I think it was like 40 or something, yeah. Yeah. So they were happy to be getting that, and they were giving him a lot of uh, creative control. Uh, And also, K&B did a heroic job on that because they only had about eight weeks, nine weeks to do all that work in that film. That was a... That was really a uh, almost a scary proposition for them. Mm. That film was done so fast and so cheap. You know, I I think I think it's fantastic for the sort of resources and uh, they had for it. Yeah, Rodriguez is an amazing filmmaker, and the boys, you know, Howard and Greg and their team, they really came through in, a, in short order, man. Like Predators, the Predator also featured its own Predator dogs. However, the new film didn't use the existing designs from before. So what was the reasoning behind doing a new design for this film? Uh, Well, once again, you'd have to ask Shane Black. Uh, And I say that, you know, with all respect, because it is a uh, it that is a decision that's made at the directing and producing level. But I think that, you know, the logic that I apply to it personally is there's different kinds of dogs. Yeah. So let's let's see a different one. You know, they don't all have to be German shepherds on the on the planet. You know, right? Were there specific sort of design elements that Shane asked you to um, you know to sort of look at with this with this new breed, so to speak? Yes, I think what he want. You know, there was a conversation about the design of the of the dog from the Rodriguez movie, and and I think he felt that they look like battle weapons, or they were so you know like they're more terrifying. And what he wanted was a fateful hound dog he wanted a very alert erect you know we were looking at like different dog body styles and i think a boxer is the is one that he really liked and and because of the character in the in the early drafts the character that gets shot in the head had a little bit more to do he got shot in the head with a bolt gun and the bolt was sticking out of his head and that kind of you know scrambled his brains and he became kind of part of the part of the team or he was similar to what's in the film but he became more of a good guy so i think he did not want he couldn't imagine using something that looked like a monster dinosaur in that role he wanted something that the audience would go like oh now it's a it's a cute thing or it's a fun thing not cute but it's a it's okay it's like it's like a mastiff or something as opposed to a komodo dragon so yeah that's what we pursued Making it sort of relatable as a, a friendlier thing, then. Yeah, but the, the head, the head, uh, the head was changed fairly significantly from what we did. Was it the dreadlocks? Were those yeah, added? Dreadlocks were added. Its face was uh, was a little bit more. I think they modified the face, and and I wouldn't be able to tell you what the thinking was behind it. But I will say this: we're going to be putting out some pictures of our design soon. Mm-hmm. And we may even be making a collectible uh, version of our display of our, I'm sorry, of our design maquette of the dog. Yeah, that's cool. You guys did a practical stand-in as well, is that right? I mean, I've seen pictures of a guy on stilts, but I, I read somewhere that you'd, you'd done like a the actual, you know, face of it um, for use on set as well. Is, is that is that true? You mean the, the dog? Yes, yes, the dog. All I ever saw was some foam 
like styrofoam, expanded bead styrofoam carvings of the full dog that was, you know, sitting sitting there that brought in for stand-ins. That's all I ever saw. We never created anything practical for it. But doesn't mean that there wasn't something. Maybe Todd Masters did something. I don't really know. So the dogs were actually what would have been one of many different type of hybrid creatures that the Predator have. Um, I believe you were also responsible for designing those? Uh, yeah, the Menagerie. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. So out, outside of some little body parts that we've you know, we've seen in some of the leaked set pictures, we don't really know anything about them um, other than that they would have supposedly had some relation to the Predators. Yeah, they uh, they were, I think that the ship crashes and it's carrying specimens from all over the galaxy. And these specimens, they're using the DNA of these super predator lethal kind of creatures to juice up their own DNA. And that went by the wayside. That There was a caravan scene where you know a couple of armored personnel carriers with the with the the loonies and and the two emissaries with machine guns which was a kick i have to say seeing a predator shooting a 50 caliber machine gun was a hilarious image that i really enjoyed but that whole scene went by the wayside i i don't know how far into the effects they got and i don't know if that was that might have been part of the reshoot but the entire attack on the convoy uh, went away as did the emissaries so our design work i think maybe we designed six or eight different creatures of you know wide variety of different types of creatures that could be on the loose and creepy and weird uh and it all it all went away but you will see that on our video <laughs> guess where we show our videos where where can we find that alec um oh well there's a, a place called youtube and your computer can take you there and once there, drive yourself in your imaginary virtual little car to uh, Studio ADI's channel on YouTube and subscribe. And how many combined viewings have you had? We have about 360 billion views. Oh, that's a lot. 70 million. No, I don't know. We've got 250,000 subscribers. Why aren't you one of them? I am. We are. Well, I know you are. I'm talking <laughs> beyond you to the to the to the unwashed masses. <laughs> Come on in, take a bath at Studio ADI's channel. Before um, the Predator came out, there were numerous false reports about the fugitive Predator being a female. Uh, it turned out this was just some misreporting, but the concept of a female Predator is something that's often dis- discussed amongst the fandom. Have you ever thought about how you two would approach designing a female predator? Uh, yeah, we tried to convince them that one of the emissaries should be a female. Oh, um, really? Yeah, I'd love to do a female predator. It's a challenge because, you know, what you don't want to do is just fall into that trap of, well, I don't want to just somebody's favorite Marvel character, She-Hulk or something, but where it's just like a babe you know, it's just like a predator with <laughs> you know, a hot predator. That's my issue when it comes to the, the sort of fan designs you see. Yeah, they're just like, oh, it's a you know, predator with boobs. But if you look at like a predator as we know it is a uh, is a pretty uh, human looking masculine shaped thing with variations of, of, mu- of human musculature. So it's not that far afield other than the head. Uh, from a from a human so it does stand to reason that you just have some you know athletic version of a female body with some changes tweaks to musculature but i would look for some 
difference uh, in, in it, I think. You know, and then you automatically go to, well, maybe it has six breasts. Maybe it has three breasts. And then you're like, why are we worrying so much about breasts? <laughs> and then I, I, and then I don't know. I mean, I don't know if the, if the, if you want to get like really alien and say, are predators androgynous, uh, or are they, you know, or, or, or um, hermaphroditic? You know, there are certainly animals, frogs, and things that, you know. So I don't know. I don't know. But it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing. The only thing I wouldn't look forward to doing is dealing with all the executives' reactions to it, <laughs> which will push it right back to a predator babe with boobs because that will be the only thing they can conceive of and anything else will be too far afield and too frightening to them so maybe what has to happen is that somebody needs to do fan art that really nails it so that you can just show an executive look at this and then all that design work is done and they can't argue with it if it's great or if it's getting great react i don't know i don't know now that i think of it i'm talking myself out of it well, there's plenty of fan art of female predators. Send me all the links of female predator fan art that you have. If you find it, <laughs> seriously, I, I would love to just peruse it all. I mean, I know I can do a Google search, but if you have any that you guys think. Are yeah, Aaron, Aaron and I can put together a, a folder. Uh-huh. Also, the, the androgynous predator idea is something that was explored a bit in one of the books. They, they called them the Hish instead of the Yacha, and they kind of, they had like different cycles where they would switch from one gender to the other. Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, there are there are fish and frogs that do that. That one didn't go down so well, though. But I don't. That book had a whole slew of other problems. Mm. Where does the uh, Where's the first use of the term yaucha? AVP prey. Yeah, Steve Perry's first AVP book, which was an adaptation of the comic book AVP prey. God, not only does he sing well, but he writes comic books. Too. Yeah, I forgot he was a singer. Was he? That's not the Steve Perry from. No, no, I'm I'm sure different Steve Perry, but I'm pretty sure the author also. Um... Really? Oh well, you must. I guess if you get like, say Steve Perry, sing uh, what's that song that everybody's "Don't Stop Believing"? Isn't that Steve Perry? Don't stop believing. <laughs> pretty sure that's not Journey. Yeah, Journey. Yeah, who's the lead singer? Journey, man. That's not Steve Perry. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna find out while we talk. Lead <laughs> singer. All right. Neil Sean currently sing lead vocals. Listen, listen. Other lead vocalists have included Steve Perry. Oh, Steve Perry, baby. Fair enough. Still got. got. Not only does he make monsters, he's got better music knowledge than us. (laughs) No, there are just some things that flash in my dim memory. (laughs) They just explode and then they disappear. You could have easily told me, no, the guy's name is Perry Stevens. And I would have gone, oh. Anyway, we're not talking about predators. We're wasting precious time, gentlemen. We've got to get to the bottom of this. You mentioned your collectibles briefly before that you guys were maybe planning on one of the dog predators, but you have other collectibles. Uh, You've been working with uh, Cool Props in collaboration to produce a collectible bust of The Fugitive. I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about that and what other replicas ADI had in the pipelines, if you can. Yeah, the fugitive. The fugitive is from our production molds, and you know we're doing what we have done with Sideshow, which is to, to provide cool props with a, uh, a mold master and paint master that then they can match and you know give the fans something that is perhaps more accurate than. Like I, I'm, I know. To me, I, I, I don't collect a lot of things, but I'm not all that interested in somebody's version of something. I'd rather have the thing, the, the item, the object as close to it as I can possibly get. So that's what the 
studio ADI line, the collection is, is, and we're treating them uh, a little bit more like pieces of art than collectibles. The reason that they are costlier is that they're not being made as replicas in by faceless unnamed artists in far-flung places. They're coming right from the studio that designed these things, these characters, for the original films. And in many cases, being worked on by the same artists that worked on them for those films. So we can vouch for the accuracy. You know, we picked the ones that we thought would most attractive to the fans. We also, Fox was able to give us a, a merchandising deal, but only on characters from Alien 3, uh, Alien Resurrection, and The Predator. But within those titles, there's there's a fair amount of stuff that we can do. But they are expensive. You know, the, the collectibles industry has, has there, there's a reason why these things are made in far-flung places by nameless factory workers and, and artists there. And that is that it makes them cheaper and it makes them very affordable. So I realized that having Studio ADI artists in Los Angeles do every step of this of this work is... Uh, it adds to the cost. It does for sure. So we, we know that we're not going to be selling tons and tons of them, but what's great is that the work goes to ADI artists uh, and they get the benefit of it and they get, you know, it keeps people employed. It keeps artists who work in a volatile and unsteady business, keeps them able to pay their bills. And that's our goal. And, and I think now that we have a direct line of communication with the fans um, through social media. People appreciate that. And, and, and a lot of the fans themselves would love to be professional artists. And, and that's one of the things I say is that, you you know, you got to be aware that you have to have multiple income streams if you want to survive. So this is our attempt to kind of like keep our, our crew together in uncertain times, you know. Yeah, I recently got the swimming alien sculpt myself, yeah. which is really cool. Well, nice. And that's a, that's a, you know, that's a design maquette, a gestural study that that was sculpted by George Shell, And, you know, it's a, it's a little piece of movie history. That was originally done for resurrection, right? Yeah. Fans were hoping to see an alternate cut of the predator that would have restored more of your work, but it seems like that's not going to be happening. In terms of our community, the assembly cut of alien three did a lot to turn around people's opinions of that film and there's certainly an appetite for an alternate cut of the Thing prequel to see ADI's practical work restored. What's your take on alternate cuts? And would you be as eager to see expanded cuts of some of the films you've worked on? Yeah, I, 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 you cite Alien 3, and that's a, that's a great example because um, people, uh, people do seem to, they did seem to really respond to that. And I'm, I'm glad it got out there. And uh, once again, I, and I, I'm not against any, any version of a, a, you know, and I, as I say, I, I, I'd love to see different versions of things out there, and I think it's good for cinephiles. And the only thing is that there's an economic model to it that I think is uh, not uh, doesn't isn't as workable as it used to be. I did a feature film, a very low budget feature film, and I was like, and of course, you know, when I was making the deal with a distributor, I was saying, and of course, we'll do Blu-rays with extra features, right? And they said, no, Blu-rays are dead. What do you mean they're dead? People don't buy Blu-rays. Well, that's ridiculous. I know people that buy Blu-rays. Yes, in your limited circles, which they mean the you know the fans of creature effects. That may be true, but Walmart doesn't want to sell them. 
Walmart doesn't want to sell them with it. So we're going to make DVDs just to have, you know, a few out there that was, and I was like dumbfounded. Like the, they believe that there is no economic model for uh, Blu-rays with additional features for my film. I did my own and um, you know, I'm not supposed to be selling them, but you can get one if you go to my website and go to the store. (laughs) And what you do is you order a, an autographed uh, still or something, and you get a free gift. And guess what the free gift is? It's a Blu-ray. I'm not selling it. It's free. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so, but like when you look at like the thing, people ask that, can we see a, a, a cut? Will there ever be a cut of the thing that has your PFX in it? And I say, I can't imagine that ever happening because everything that we designed in the film had a digital component to it. It, it wasn't, you know, what we wanted to do was to, within a frame or within a shot, we wanted to have an animatronic creature that had additive digital aspects to it. Maybe it would be, you know, rig removal or something like that, but more likely it would be adding limbs to it or, or you know, that's why when you look at our, our YouTube video of all of our stuff that we built for the thing and, you know, the stretching neck and the faces are, you know, sticking next to each other, well, there's no limbs supporting that character because those were going to be added digitally and they were going to be morphing and changing while it kind of like, you know, moves in a herky jerky fashion. So in order to do a completed version of that, you have to spend millions of dollars on digital effects. Still, you know, you could ask the studio, is it worth spending, let's say, eight million bucks to do another cut of a movie that didn't make any money, you know? So I think they'd probably not be interested in that. It's not like all the footage is just there, uh, ready to go, and now you got a complete movie. That saddens yeah. me so much. Like the, everything seems to be converted into this age of digital ownership rather than physical stuff. So, yeah. I think a good portion of of people still prefer to have physical media. I think there's still a place for it, at, at least for a while. And and even with digital media, people have always liked special features in in movies. So it, it's such a great learning tool, you know. Mm-hmm. Such a like just to hear, just to go watch a you know a movie with a with a great director talking about what they were thinking when they were shooting something. And that it's it's you know to not have it is is really uh, it's it's upsetting. I I agree, but everything is based on the economics of it. Unless you get some charitable organization or a USC film school doing something for the purposes of education, if it doesn't make money or if they don't think it's going to make money. They're not going to put the money into it, you know. Mm. Well, that's that's just the reality, isn't it? It's not it's cold hard truth. I, I probably we've in the net we've had a net gain of behind the scenes because you do have YouTube with so much behind the scenes footage. I watched some a great thing like forty five minutes long uh, on the uh, behind the scenes of the newest um, Mission Impossible, and I had no idea so much was practical, you know. I thought, oh, they, yeah. I thought they were doing face replacement on, uh, what's his name, on Tom Cruise when he's riding the motorcycle through through Paris, and it's him. Yeah, he's flying the helicopter, too. No, that was, I saw I some of those, yeah. It's insane. It's absolutely insane. Because my assumption is, well, they won't let him do it because they can't insure that, right? Like, if he dies or gets injured and, and can't shoot, the movie's screwed. But I guess, I guess because he's a, I don't know how they get around that insurance issue. Unless he just says, I won't do it unless you let me hang off a freaking building in the <laughs> East or something. I mean, he's 
he's really unlike any other producer star I think that's ever been. Anyway, so maybe uh, maybe on 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 YouTube there's a lot more stuff like like you wouldn't have that kind of thing. I don't think as a as an additional feature just like to be able to sit and watch 45 minutes of unnarrated raw footage. Maybe maybe there is that but I, I hope they, the studios start to see the value in that more. Cause I, I just think back of like how happy we were to get the original, um, alien quadrilogy on DVD and then alien anthology on Blu-ray. Like we had two cuts of each movie. Could you imagine yeah. being an alien fan without those, um, you know, those features and those insights, Charles de Rica did so much for the fandom with those documentaries and how in depth they were, even in terms of Prometheus. Would it be the same if, uh, if they released the film? Uh, well, if you just had to go to YouTube to get all that stuff, would you think the impact would be the same? Is it different having it on a, a disc or a collection of discs? I think so. I think there's just something about being able to just dive into a movie, you know, get immersed with not only the movie itself, but everything that went into making it. And I think the Internet's just so distracting that having that on a disc and having that physical media really adds to the value, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you. I grew up with it. and I, I, I love all that stuff, so. Uh, but you know, know. there's also the sense that you know that the digital stuff could just be taken away could just go you know if youtube went down fox deleted the video that kind of thing i mean as long as you've got a perfectly working dvd player and you've got your dvds yeah true it's true now i know you're going to be able to say very little about this but it would be remiss of me not to bring it up and that is um that Neil Blomkamp recently shared a sculpt that ADI did for his Alien 5. And it's of, of an alien with two pairs of arms. Now, back in October of last year, Tom did a Ask Me Anything, and he mentioned a maquette that ADI worked on for Neil. I'm assuming this was that piece? That is correct. You know, again, I know you're not going to be able to say very much about it, but I hope we could just, you know, tell us a little bit about it. I mean, it looks like there's a deliberate um, recall to the original Big Chap, and it also seemed to follow the um, multi-limbed or, you know, uh, mutated appearance that we also saw in Carlos Huante's concept art for the film that he released. Yeah, what was the, what was Carlos's work? Was that for Covenant? No, it was, it was, it was for Alien 5, um, Red Harvest, I think the code name was. Oh, okay. Oh. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Carlos was doing stuff for us. That's right. Yeah, the yeah Red Harvest. Yes. So Neil came to us, and there were a few different projects, that being one of them, but a few different character and design things. That while he was writing the script, he had us working on simultaneous to that. And yes, he very much was interested in recapturing the '79 Alien with some modifications. And the uh, that sculpture was done done by Tim Martin for us. And uh, yeah, we've just um, kept it under wraps until Neil Instagrammed it, and then we re-Instagrammed it. But it's it's really you know he's he takes the lead on that. I'm just not not going to say much or show much from the project. But as Neil releases it, I, I get excited. I got very excited when I saw that he. He released that one because we were quite proud of that that nice little maquette. And kind of sticking to the tom the topic of biomechanical. After Alien Three, the aliens took on a more organic appearance due to the nature of Alien Resurrection's story. Uh, since then, ADI haven't had the opportunity to create an entirely new alien warrior design. Something which we understand was largely due to budgetary reasons for AVP and Requiem. Uh, Requiem did feature some biomechanical elements, most notably added to the neck, but it was, as far as we know, a reuse of the Resurrection AVP molds. 
While some fans expected the prequels to return to the biomechanical, Covenant's alien again retained a much more naturalistic appearance. Do you feel it's about time to return to those original biomechanical designs from the first three films? I think people definitely miss it, and I would like to see a return. I'd also like to see a seven-foot-tall, 160-pound guy wearing a suit as well, you know, if such a guy exists. It's funny because Alien 3 definitely had less of a biomechanical aspect to it. And in our conversations with Fincher, the rationale was that not only does the alien take on some characteristics of its host, which is why in the 79 alien, uh, it's, it's got two arms and two legs, but it also has a chameleon-like ability to mimic its surroundings. So if you look at the art direction of the Nostromo and you see all that mechanical kludgery, that's why the creature reflects that so that it can blend into those surroundings. When you got into Alien 3, it was born of an ox or a dog, depending on which version you, you watch, but it was born of an animal, so it was on all fours. And it did not have a, a surrounding an environment that was giving it all the high-tech stuff. But So what we did was we took some of the sepia tones from the walls and used it in the alien, whereas in uh, 79, it was more blacks and metallic silvers with some blues and things. In this case, it became more like the color of the concrete which was the sepia tones, which is also in Giger's artwork. Giger has a lot of sepia tones in his artwork. Mm -hmm. So, but if you notice, I skipped over aliens. Aliens really departed probably, I, I feel like aliens is a greater departure in design from, from the 79, from alien than alien resurrection is. I think, Resur I'm sorry, not resurrection. I think alien three and alien share more of a similarity in creature design because of the dome, because of the spindliness of the, of the creature, uh, and sculpturally as well. I think they share more of a link. Aliens, uh, if you look at those suits, there isn't a whole lot of bio. Like, there's some biomechanical stuff in the head, but like ribcage, very, very bone-like. The suits are very sparse as well. There are appliques of pieces on uh, black spandex, which is the only time that technique has been used in an alien film. And that relies on a lot of slime to make the black spandex disappear. So it's kind of like a skeleton suit. Um, but like, if you look at their hand, the hands of those aliens, not nearly as biomechanical, certainly as 79, but in a way they're less kind of biomechanical than alien three as well. So it's interesting to me because I think that Aliens is such a great film that people don't really do make too much. As far as I can see, you guys would know better than me. As far as I can see, they don't make much of a thing about the departures of design of, of Aliens. And I don't really hear people complaining about it. Maybe I'm wrong. Am I wrong? <laughs> well, that that is still as is, is sort of divisive as any of the others to be honest like my first experience with fandom was coming online and seeing people bitch about the queen really yeah yeah if you look at that i mean that's a very organic looking character you know bitching about the queen i think the queen is one of the greatest uh, monsters of all time and and to me it's also like i think that the aliens are it's a xenomorph it's changing you know it has a great ability to change and to hide itself and to morph into you know one thing or another so like 
you know, like you remember those toys, you know, a gorilla alien or whatever, you know, you, mm-hmm. you have a great, that's what's fun about it to be too locked into a, it's not to say that you should just trash what Giger did. Lord knows we've been accused of that as if we, as if we had to ever had the authority to just trash what Giger did. But I, I don't want that because I still think that the most brilliant design of all of these creatures is what Giger did in the first film. It is, it is genius, right? But at some point you have to go somewhere with it. I think, I think that's where the controversy starts is that you go somewhere, but it's inevitably not as great as where Giger, because that was the pinnacle of a career of a a lifetime of developing a language of this biomechanical imagery that he did that was already in place before Ridley Scott even saw the script for Dan O'Bannon wrote it, that look was in place and had been developed and that you, you just don't get that in movies, you know, because everybody sits down with a blank piece of paper and says, what are we doing? You know? And then you try to come up with something that looks that way, but this guy had, it was already, you know, cut out of whole cloth. So I have tremendous respect for that. I don't, I don't, you know, so far I'm not seeing anything that rivals it. I get the predator's design comes very close to, to being, um, you know, certainly there are those who prefer the predator over the alien. It's a tough thing to beat what Giger did in the first film. And, and your reasoning behind that, I've, you know, I've never really considered that was all developed so much longer than the, the film's production. That's, that's a really interesting thought on that. Well, I mean, it's like, you know, Ridley Scott, we worked with him on his unproduced version of I Am Legend. We did makeup tests. I don't know if you guys have seen those. Have you seen our makeup test for I Am Legend? I think I have. I'm not sure if I've seen that one or not. Yeah, you should. We have a YouTube channel. <laughs> Uh, check it out though, because we did work for, uh, you know, maybe about six months with Ridley when he was, he was going to get that movie off the ground starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. And it came in $10 million higher than Warner brothers was willing to spend. He took off and did gladiator, but what, so that was my one opportunity to work with Sir Ridley and it was fantastic, but we were asking him questions about that, asking about Giger and how, how things went and, he said that, you know, Giger was constantly frustrated by the creature effects crew, like, the, you know, the the, peop- the crew that was brought in were more traditional creature guys that had worked on, you know, whatever Doctor Who or whatever they had done. Roger Dickens is a genius, by the way, in my opinion, but they were more of the kind of conventional mindset where they would be like, uh, you know, why aren't we sculpting scales or warts right and giger would have to say look this is biomechanical and show the artwork and convince people that it was going to work so that must have been this is what i say about like political battles or or behind the scenes travails that i find fascinating i can't imagine this soft-spoken swiss guy who's used to working by himself as a fine artist has to now work with a crew of people who don't necessarily share his vision i'm not I don't know this for sure. Maybe they were all smitten by him and they were like blown away by his artwork. But I have a feeling he probably had to step into a world of people who had worked together and were a little bit like he was probably an outsider. And and, and I haven't heard. I know he had a diary. So maybe he talks about that. And you guys are aware of it. And I'm not. But I find that stuff very, very interesting. But anyway, oh, where was I? I don't know. My blood sugar level has dropped. <laughs> all right. Well, on on that note, that's actually all the questions we have for you. But before we sign off, uh, is there any anecdote or story or anything that you would like to say that we just haven't given you the opportunity to get into? 
Um, oh, let's say I rambled so much. I can't imagine that I, I didn't say everything. <laughs> I, I think I talked about the, did I talk about the YouTube channel? I did. I did. <laughs> Once or twice. I did that. No, I think I, uh, you know, we'll talk again. You guys want to do this again at some point, talk more generally. Mm-hmm. We can. Yeah. Yeah. What else? Anything? Nah. Fantastic. Right, so uh, Alec, thank you once again. You know, I know we've robbed you of two hours of your time and probably your dinner to come and talk to a bunch of nerds on the internet. And um, we do really appreciate it and we hope everybody who's listened has enjoyed it as well. If for some wacky reason you're listening to this and you don't already know our um, our outlets, um, you can visit the website at www.evpgalaxy.net. We're on Facebook as Alien vs Predator Galaxy. Um, we're on Twitter as at avpgalaxy. Um, we're on Instagram again as uh, Alien vs Predator Galaxy, and we we even have a YouTube channel as well. I mean, it's not quite as many views or videos um, as Alex uh, will tell you about shortly, uh, but you can find us on YouTube as um, Alien vs Predator Galaxy as well. Um, so Alec, I think you have one or two, you know, places that people might be interested in. Yes, absolutely, and I want to say thank you very much for letting me come on the show. I do like ch- talking about about the stuff, especially to passionate people and for passionate people. Uh, but if you'd like to follow Studio ADI, uh, we are on the old Instagrams and Twitter. There's at the Studio ADI on Instagram, and uh, my Twitter and Instagram handle is Alec underscore Gillis. Tom's is Tom underscore Woodruff Jr. Of course, you may or may not have heard me um, pitch and plug my uh, the YouTube channel, but uh, we are on YouTube, Studio ADI's channel. And then if you want to check out our store, if you go to uh, www.studioadi.com, you can cruise around our website and look at our store and stuff and you know just have fun learning and uh, looking and all that stuff. And uh, I look forward to ta- chatting with you guys again soon. And this has been Corporal Hicks. And Ridgetop. And I'm Alec Gillis. And get into the chopper! <laughs> I <laughs> love it every, every time a little bit. Uh, thank you, guys. Uh, thanks for listening. All right. Thanks, yeah. gentlemen.